This weekend, a man brandishing a four-foot sword charged at Buckingham Palace police, shouting, Alu Akbar, as he sought to strike them. And this was just an hour after a man attacked Belgian soldiers from behind with a knife with very familiar shouts of, of Alu Akbar. Now, following the recent attacks in, in Spain, in London, right, the Ariana Grande concert, Nice, Paris, Orlando, I could just keep going. That's just most recently. That begs the question. We have to ask ourselves, why are these things happening? Why do these things happen? You know, the Western governments and media have been generally reluctant to identify these actions with Islam. The perpetrators of these actions have not been so reluctant. They understand it's their religious duty. They actually proclaim it. They shout it, even if necessary, by violence, to bring all under Dar al-Islam, right? Submission to the Quran, to Sharia law. And this according to their worldview, is what it means to bring about the kingdom of God. It's what it means to bring about the kingdom of God. Now, that might strike us as shocking, but it's actually not new. Just a few weeks ago, we marked the anniversary of the first crusade that sacked Jerusalem in 1099, where bloodthirsty mercenaries slaughtered every Muslim in that city. Women were raped, infants were dashed against walls, Jews who took refuge in various synagogues were burned alive. According to eyewitnesses at the Porch of Solomon, horses waded in blood up to their knees, all in the name of advancing the kingdom of God on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church. All right, so is that how were to understand the kingdom of God. Does this kingdom come at the edge of a sword? Now, we may recoil at the idea, but we have to ask the question, how does it come? I mean, what even is the kingdom of God? Does it exist? What's our role? Do we bring it about? What will it even be like? Well, to help us think through these questions this morning, I want us to be turning back in our Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 4. The book of Mark chapter 4. I invite you to turn there with me. We're going to be in verses 21 to 34. And if you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one in the seat back before you, page 839. Page 839. And listen, we recognize people come all the time who aren't familiar with the Bible. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, just know you can take that one with you if you don't have one. And if you open it up, when I speak of a chapter number, that's the big, bold number. That'll be the big, bold four. And if I speak of a verse number, those are going to be those little superscript numbers. Now, if you're just joining us, Mark was written by John Mark in Rome, somewhere between the mid-50s and mid-60s AD. And there in Rome, Mark was a constant companion of Peter. It's actually Peter's own eyewitness accounts to the life of Jesus that serves the source of all of Mark's material. In many respects, the book of Mark, the gospel, is like Peter's memoirs. And the basic theme, as we noted last week, was that Jesus is the Son of God whose life and death ransoms the people of God. That's the message of the book of Mark. Jesus is the Son of God whose life and death ransoms for even the soul of God. And if there's a single verse that sort of encapsulates that, it's Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Peter, if you know much about him, he was the kind of guy who tended to to act first and to think later, right? So it's not surprising that Mark's account of Jesus' own life also reflects that same flurry of activity. So we're dropped into the action back in Mark 1 as John's baptizing and the crowds are gathering, God starts speaking, demons start running, right? This guy, Jesus, is healing as he goes about. It's a vigorous and lively account of Jesus' own ministry, right? He's focusing more on the actions of Jesus than the teachings of Jesus. And it's why for many of you who, or the few of you perhaps who pay attention to such things, this whole series has been called More Than a Teacher, because it's highlighting the actions of Christ. But there are two pauses in the book where we take a break from the action, we catch our breath, and we encounter Jesus' teaching, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. And we know that as Jesus' ministry, as it exploded on the scene, along the way, Jesus made some enemies. The religious establishment, right, we've seen they're, con- they're convening these emergency meetings to deal with this religious upstart. They had this arrangement with their Roman captors. Right? We'll keep the people in check so long as you keep us in power. And Jesus' his, his popularity, the way in which he's gathering the crowds, the magnetism of his ministry is upsetting that balance. They're getting nervous. Even his own family, we've seen, wanted to commit him to a psych ward. But in the midst of all this, the disciples see an opportunity. At this point, the disciples, they, they smell glory. You know, maybe this Jesus, all we've seen, maybe he is the long-awaited Messiah. Maybe he is the one who can return us to the good old days, like back under King David or King Solomon, right, when we had our throne, we had our own king, we had our own land and boundaries, right, when our, when our enemies feared us. Maybe Jesus will bring back those days. You know, under their breaths, maybe they're starting to chant back Joel 3.10, Right, beat our plowshares into swords, our pruning hooks into spears. Right, let's gather an army like Joshua before the Canaanites. Let's, let's go out, let's route some Roman tail, let's erect this empire, let's build God's kingdom. And it's amidst these growing expectations of, of national glory and of kingdom building that Jesus tells the three parables we find in our passage this morning. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, let's read. And he, Jesus, said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. What the measure you use will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? 
It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, what unites these parables is this notion of the kingdom of God, right? You see that clearly with the parable of the growing seed in verse 20. He said the kingdom of God is as if. Verse 30, what can we compare the kingdom of God? Even the parable of that lamp under the basket, the first one we read, is in the context of the parable of the soils that came right before it. A set of parables Jesus gave, verse, chapter 4, verse 11, as he noted to you, the disciples had been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Right? But to those outside, everything is given in parables. So in these three parables, Jesus is addressing misconceptions that his own disciples would have about the kingdom of God. Misconceptions we often share along with the disciples as well. So we've got three parables. We're going to have three points around three misconceptions of the kingdom of God. Now listen, I like to be surprised. I love surprises. So when my wife was pregnant, I never wanted to find out the sex of the baby. All right, let's, let's just wait. Let's just, we'll have the baby. We'll find out then. It'll be awesome. Which is why I often don't give you the points of my message up front. I keep you waiting. A little bit of a surprise keeps you anticipating, hoping. But I've been told some of you don't really like those surprises. You know, my wife, when we pregnant, she's like, I love surprises. I love surprises. It's called the sonogram in a doctor's office. That's our surprise. Then we can plan. All right. If you're like that, if you like to plan, if you want to know it all beforehand, but you don't want to be surprised, here are your three points. The kingdom of God is personal, not physical. It's personal, not physical. Secondly, it's proclaimed, not performed. The kingdom of God is proclaimed, not performed. And thirdly, the kingdom of God will be phenomenal, not inconsequential. It will be phenomenal, not inconsequential. And I know the last one destroys the sacred alliteration of the peas. I get it. I know that. I could have said it's phenomenal, not paltry or piddling, but that seemed too cute and silly, and so I just went with what's clear. I'm sorry. A little mental furniture. Okay. All right. First misunderstanding. The kingdom of God, it is personal, not physical. It's personal, not physical. It's the lesson in this first parable, the lamp under a basket. Because the disciples were expecting the kingdom of God to be like the kingdom under David. It would have geographical boundaries, some form of a government, of of an army, of a king and a throne. So in the context of talking about the kingdom of God, Jesus says in verse 21, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. Of course, the answer is no. Of course, lamps are to be brought in, to be put on a stand. That's their very purpose. It's, it's to reveal, it's to illuminate, not to conceal. All right, but what does all this have to do with the kingdom of God? Well, the interesting thing is that the verb there is not actually literally brought in. We put that in English because it makes it clearer. 
But literally, it reads, does a lamp come in? Does a lamp come in? Now, there's a perfectly good Greek word to say bring in. But interestingly, that's not how Jesus speaks. He uses that rather awkward expression, does a lamp come in? Now, of course, unless we're talking about Disney and Beauty and the Beast, lamps don't sprout legs and they don't walk places. They don't go anywhere. But people do. People do. And in the Old Testament, that lamp is often associated with God in 2 Samuel 22, or even more specifically with the promised Messiah in Psalm 132, for example. Throughout Mark, this very, very word come is associated with Jesus and his ministry, him coming and the kingdom coming with him. And so for those with ears to hear, right, Jesus is saying this, this parable about the lamp, it's about how the parable how the kingdom of God comes in me. It comes in Jesus. Right? What's been hidden, what's been a secret in verse 22, is going to be what's made manifest. It's what's going to be revealed, what comes to light. Right? Jesus is the lamp of God who comes to bring light and revelation to all mankind. And just as the lamp is to have nothing placed above it, like a basket, or just as that lamp is not to be placed underneath anything like a bed, so Jesus is not going to be subordinate to anything. He's going to be supreme over all things. According to the Bible, the kingdom of God is fundamentally about Jesus. It's about him. It is personal, not physical. It's not about a place. So when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's not talking about walls with moats and castles and swords and knights and and some guy with a crown on his head on some human throne. That's not how the Bible talks about the kingdom of God. It's about Jesus, which means it transcends all geographic boundaries, right? For the communism of China to the secularism of Denmark to the tribalism in Papua New Guinea, all those places, the kingdom of God extends to wherever hearts and minds bow the knee to Christ, That's where the kingdom of God exists. And if it's about Jesus, that means that there's no one nation, there's no one people group that can claim to uniquely represent the kingdom of God. Right, not the United States, not Israel, not any nation, not any people. Right, you can't draw its boundaries on a map. It has no flag. It has no national anthem. There's no standing army to fight for it. It doesn't have a seat at the UN. It's not how the kingdom of God works. Does that mean we can't see it? Does that mean we've, there's no place to look and witness this kingdom of God? Well, in fact, we can see it. We can see it. If you know Acts chapter 9, Saul there, the great persecutor of the Christian church, he encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And do you remember what Jesus says to Saul In Acts 9, verse 4, he calls out to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Well, he doesn't say, why why, why are you persecuting Stephen? Back in Acts 7, he doesn't say that. He says, doesn't say, why are you persecuting those Christians in Jerusalem? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting that small group in Judea? He doesn't say any of that. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Right? That's how closely Jesus himself identifies with 
his church. Right? He calls it, Paul refers to it as Christ's body in Ephesians 5. Right? You want to know where the kingdom of God exists? Look to local churches. That's where we see the kingdom of God. That's the institution Christ has left to represent his rule and his reign on earth. That's why if you're a Christian, you ought to be formally committed in some way to a local church, right? To wander outside of that church, it actually weakens the the witness of Christ, of his body. It actually leaves you vulnerable. In the New Testament, the church It's where we hear the commands of Jesus. It's where we learn how to obey him. It's where we get to love and serve him. It's also where we love and serve others and they love and serve us. Membership doesn't make people Christians, but it does mark them out as such. Jesus gave churches that authority to bind and to loose in Matthew 18, which is another way of saying like that's the authority to sort of tag sheep, tag sheep through baptism into membership and then remove that tag, if necessary, through excommunication. That's what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 18. Right? We're in membership. We say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And a church says, yes, we hear that profession. We understand that you are. Right? Jesus left that to his body, the local church, to determine. That's not actually up to you and me finally to determine. That's what churches do, which is why if you claim this morning to follow Christ outside of a local church, the Bible doesn't actually understand your claim to be a Christian. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, not at all. I'm not saying that. I'm simply noting that the Bible doesn't have a category of someone who professes to follow Christ and yet doesn't identify formally with that body, with that institution he left to bear witness to him. Now listen, that may seem crazy to you. It seemed crazy to me when I first heard it. I didn't particularly like hearing that because I liked having my relationship with Jesus on my own terms. I didn't want someone else to define it. I wanted to follow Jesus on my terms, frankly, not his. But as I looked through the scriptures, I saw increasingly that's the case. That's what you see when you walk through the New Testament. And friend, if perhaps that's you this morning, let me just encourage you. We have a a new member class, a discovery class, where you can come along, you can learn more about this church. You can say, Pastor, you said some crazy things in those sermons. I want to better understand it and see if you're really teaching the scriptures. Invite those questions, love those questions. But more importantly, I don't want you to just go to that class, so that might be great. I want you to see in your own life the importance of committing to Christ in a local church. Doesn't have to be this one, but some local church. The kingdom of God is personal. It's about Jesus. But we see it's personal in another way. It actually calls you to make a decision. It calls you to make a decision. It's why he says in verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. Verse 25, for to one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And sometimes verse 25 can throw us. You know, just to be clear though, Jesus isn't addressing some of the challenges of capitalism, like how the rich can get richer, the poor get poorer. This isn't what you'd find in a Bernie Sanders speech. I'm not going that direction. It's not about the prosperity gospel, right? If you have and if you give, And if you give all, more will even come back to you. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's simply saying that if you're truly willing to open your heart, your mind, and listen to my teachings, to hear them and to heed them, which is what it means to listen, then you're going to grow in understanding. But if you ignore or if you reject what little teaching you have heard, even that will be lost. Right, so if you've come this morning and you're not a Christian, 
Right? Maybe you're, you're agnostic, maybe you're atheist, maybe you come from a different religious background, perhaps you come from a Buddhist background or a Catholic background. Please know that Christianity hinges on the person of Jesus. It's not fundamentally about a political party. It's not about policy issues like abortion or immigration, though those are important. It's not about a particular pastor. It's not about a priest. It's not about a various denomination. It's whether or not Jesus truly is the Son of God. Is he who he claimed to be? Did he live that perfect life in obedience to his heavenly Father? And did he die on the cross as that final sacrifice for sins? And did he then rise from the grave? Was his resurrection serving as that giant receipt stamped across history, paid in full? Is that what Jesus and his ministry is about? Is that his person and ministry? That's what we have to understand about the gospel It's good news that in Jesus, right, in him, and only in Jesus can we be forgiven of our sins, right, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Is that the gospel message? Because, friends, we don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We can't merit it. We can't add anything to it. We certainly can't cooperate with it to gain it. It's about what Jesus has done for us, not what we're called to do for him. It's the basic message of the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you have ears to hear it? Are you listening? So if you're not a Christian this morning, don't confuse other messages of Christianity for that basic message you just heard, for what Jesus exposes so clearly throughout his own life and ministry. Christianity is all about how the kingdom of God has come in a person, and that's the risen Jesus Christ. So, friend, what will you do with the words of Jesus? What will you do with them? Are you going to hear them and heed them? Or are you going to disregard them? Are you going to respond in faith or reject in unbelief? Because those who listen to Jesus will find that 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 door opens before them into the glorious kingdom of their Father. And yet for those who, who hear and reject, they will find even the faint outline of that door that was just beginning to take shape. And if they reject and ignore, they will see that that faint outline fades into darkness and disbelief and despair. The kingdom of God is personal. It's not physical. It's about Jesus. And friends, that brings us to our second misunderstanding. The kingdom of God is proclaimed, not performed. It's proclaimed, not performed. So the first parable really addresses what the kingdom of God is. Right? It's about a person. It's about Jesus. The second question is more about how does it come to us? That's what this next parable is discussing, thinking about more. This parable of the, the seed growing, or you might call it the successful seed. And it's interesting because in this parable, Mark's the only one that records it for us. We don't read of it in Matthew or in Luke. But it, it's connected thematically with what came before and after. We have this kingdom of God. This, again, we have the picture of this farming imagery of a, of a farmer scattering seed. The seed images continue, so we read 426. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. And he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. 
Now, at one level, we have to confess, this isn't exactly the most exciting illustration. We might wonder, I, we've just talked about seeds. Maybe Jesus is running a little low on his sermon illustrations. I don't know what, perhaps what's happening here, but I mean, why not? Why not compare the kingdom of God to something like the glory of an eclipse? Why not compare it to, to the absolute sudden shock of an earthquake or, or the unrelenting power of a tropical storm, or the excitement of a Mayweather McGregor fight? I mean, whatever it is, you could have used other images, Jesus, other than this sort of boring image of a seed. I mean, it's rather banal. I mean, how dull can you get? The farmer, look, what does a farmer do? He doesn't do anything. The whole parable, the farmer doesn't do anything. He hasn't engineered some genetically modified super seed that we can, wow. He doesn't have some great combine or farming technique that draws our attention to him. All he does is scatter the seed, and then he goes to bed. And then he wakes up. And then he goes to bed. And then he wakes up. Over and over, his grand contribution to the success of the seed is his sleep. That's it. Nothing else. And somehow yet it grows. He knows not how, verse 27, but it grows. The earth produces it, verse 28. How? By itself. By itself. Automate is that word in the Greek. And I never mentioned Greek words, but it was a fun one. It's where we get our word automatic. It happens, this growth, automatically. The blade, the ear, then the grain, without any help from you or from me. And friend, that's the very point of the parable. That's the point. The point is not about the activity or the ingenuity of this farmer. He doesn't do anything but scatter and then sleep the rest of the time. It's about divine agency. It's that the kingdom of God is not going to come about by human activity, but by that divine agency. Friends, this is a good reminder. It's a reminder we often need to hear because this isn't how we tend to think about the kingdom of God. You know, if we're not careful, we'll talk as if the kingdom of God is dependent upon us. It's dependent upon our ingenuity or our activity or maybe the success of our church, our denomination. But recognize The kingdom of God is not dependent upon this evangelism strategy or that program. It's not dependent upon this speaker or that venue. Or to bring about the kingdom of God, we don't have to have the right party in office or the right composition on the bench. It's not about winning the culture wars or preserving the Pledge of Allegiance or prayers in our public schools. Right? Don't get me wrong. It matters who's in office. It matters who's in the bench. I get that. But we can't think for a minute that the kingdom of God in some way depends upon such things or whether or not there's, there's a mark to the Ten Commandments on some overgrown lawn somewhere. It doesn't, the kingdom of God doesn't depend upon that. We've got to erase from our minds any notion that by our activity, we usher in the kingdom. And sometimes this can be a problem, especially amongst those who like to use missional language, right? We're building the kingdom. We're doing the work of the kingdom, and yet when we read the New Testament, that's actually not how the New Testament talks about the kingdom of God, right? We don't, we don't build it. We don't expand it. We can enter it. Yes, we don't erect it. We can inherit it. Yes, we can do that, but we don't establish it. We can look for it. We can pray for it. We can seek it, but we don't bring it. 
The kingdom of God is a gift that God gives to us. It's not a set of accomplishments that he expects from us. It's not what we perform. It's more than social services. It's more than the alleviation of human suffering. You know, Kevin DeYoung has written a good bit on this. He's helpfully noted it finally means the destruction of God's enemies, the purging the world of impurity, acknowledging the splendor of the king, Right, so before we get all excited about going out and doing kingdom work, we have to remember that the coming of God's kingdom finally is not just going to be devoid of hunger. It's going to be devoid of the wicked and the unbelieving as well. And that's what's pictured in that image of the harvest you know, that ends that parable. Verse 29. Now, throughout the Bible, the harvest is an image of judgment. It's an image of judgment constantly throughout the Old Testament prophets, you have parallels in this text to Joel 3.13, even to Revelation 14.19, where, where Christ swings that sickle across the earth, and as he swings it, he gathers the harvest, right? He's going to separate that harvest, and all of those not in him, right? He throws into what? The winepress of the wrath of God's fury. It's a sobering parable in that regard. Jesus as the reaper of souls. But that's exactly what we confessed in that statement of faith earlier in the service, right? Christ descends, a solemn separation takes place. You know, the wicked, the endless punishment, but those righteous, not of their own accord, but right, all righteous in Christ to endless joy. Which is why though we don't perform the kingdom, what we must do as Christians, we don't perform it, but we must proclaim it. That's what we must do as Christians. That's what's pictured in that scattering of the seed, right? Our job is to share, God's is to save. Ours is to proclaim, we let God pierce the heart. Ours is to sow, God's the one who's gonna make it grow. And sometimes it looks as if nothing is happening. We're not getting anywhere. You know, this is where I love that story of Luke Short, and if I used it before, you get to hear it again, it's worth it. You know, this is a man nearing 100 years old in the 17th century. He's a farmer in New England. And he's out there one day, and he's out on his farm, and he's sitting upon a rock near 100. He's reflecting upon his life. And he remembers when he was about 15 years old, hearing the sermon of a a famous Puritan preacher named John Flavel. That sermon didn't mean much to him when he was 15. It meant a lot less to him, frankly, when he was a grown man. But now here, here he is at the end of his life. He's reflecting upon his life. And there, upon that rock, meditating upon those words of the gospel again, those words took root, and those roots sprung, and that hard heart was cracked wide open. John Flavel was long since dead. 85 years before, an ocean away, Flavel's long since dead, but in that moment, that man becomes alive. Friends, the seed of the word may lie under the earth until we do, and then it might spring up. Friend, do you share the gospel with that kind of confidence? Do you pray with that kind of confidence? Right at the end of the day, all we've got is the word of God. We've got the prayers of the saints. We've got the witness of his people, the church. But friends, with God, that is absolutely all we'll ever need. You know, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So you find sprinkled into passages a few more quotes by great reformers, right? So we 
think about the Reformation. You know, how did that happen, the recovery of the gospel, the gospel we shared and talked about a few moments ago? You know, was that gospel recovery, is it attributable to Martin Luther's own prodigious activity, to his own ingenuity as a monk at the time? Well, consider his own testimony. He says, quote, take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences, all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, right, if you've heard this quote before, you might have passed by and went, while I slept, like the farmer in our parable, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, that's Luther's edition, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Right? We proclaim the word. God performs the work. That's how the kingdom of God goes forward. But this brings us to our third and final misunderstanding of the kingdom. Right? That last parable of the mustard seed. So if that first parable dealt with sort of what the kingdom of God is, it's a person in Jesus, not a place. The second really with how it comes, right? We proclaim it, we don't perform it. This last reveals more, how's it gonna come about? What's it gonna be like? What's it gonna be like? And here we see the kingdom of God, it will be phenomenal, not inconsequential. It's gonna be phenomenal, not inconsequential. Verse 30, what can we compare the kingdom of God what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. They were, as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And that's a little bit, that last little bit sort of ties in the section of the parables with how he began back in 4.1. But as we think about that parable in the context of Jesus' ministry at this point, things aren't exactly looking up about now. Yes, it's true, Jesus has performed some remarkable miracles, and those aren't about to end, and there is nobody like this Jesus, but at the same time, we've seen the religious leaders have got a bullseye on this guy's back. And the crowds, well, they're starting to turn a bit, right? The 12, they're simple fishermen. That's what we have. None of them formally trained theologically or politically or militarily. They don't come from, from places of great influence. They don't bring big donors with deep pockets. They don't have massive fundraising machines behind their efforts as they follow Jesus. And at just the time when they need Jesus... When they need Jesus to win over the skeptical crowds, his preaching starts to take on more of this cryptic note. He's in parables. It's not as attractional, not as seeker-friendly as it used to be. It's simply hard to imagine at this point, how is this guy with these 12 going to change the world? That's why he tells this parable. That's why this parable is here. Because you've got a mustard seed, what, one to two millimeters, like a little tiny you know, grain of... Uh, of coffee, like a coffee grind, effectively, on the tip of your finger. That's the size of a mustard seed. And yet it's going to grow into something as large, you know, as humongous, as, as, a, as a bush of sorts, bush tree about 15 feet high or so. And he brings that up because in these last two parables, there's an element of surprise. 
Just as the farmer is surprised that as he sleeps, the seed grows and sprouts and flourishes, though he doesn't know how, it does it all by itself. They're surprised. So here, there's surprise. There's surprise that you could get something as immense as this mustard tree from this little infinitesimal seed. And the point isn't exactly the height of the tree. It's not the height of the tree. You know, it's, there are taller trees. There were cedar trees around. That wasn't the point. It's not exactly the end result. But how does this kingdom go from obscurity and insignificance, and how does that develop into something remarkable in the end that surprises us all? That's the movement of the parable. And friends, just as the disciples needed this reminder, lest they become discouraged as they look around them, right, we need the same reminder today as a church because often the kingdom of God, it doesn't look like it's making a lot of progress in the world. When I was praying about Russia jailing missionaries again. Right, we read about that this past week. Forms of militant Islam continue to dominate much of, of Africa. In what was the birthplace of historic Christianity, Christians are being run out. They largely don't exist there anymore within Syria or Turkey or even increasingly Egypt. Hate speech legislation surrounding gender and sexuality that continues to threaten free speech and, and religious freedom, right? 80% of Southern Baptist churches are either plateaued or are declining. Like, however you want to look at it, a lot of the numbers aren't that encouraging. The trends aren't promising. I mean, let's just, think, let's just be honest. I mean, right now, let's go half a mile outside this building. My guess is there are way more people asleep than in any Christian service, Go a half mile out here. Far more people are asleep, I'm guessing right now, than in any Christian service by a factor of two or ten. I don't know what it is, but that's my guess. And yet to all this is Jesus is saying, I got it. I know. Don't sweat it. It's going to be just fine. Because what appears hidden right now will turn into a harvest and it will be marvelous. That's what he's getting at. You know, in the Old Testament, the prophets use this image of, of birds resting and taking shade in the shadow of branches, and it used that image to allude to the Gentiles being brought into that spiritual tree, being grafted into the household of God. You can think of Daniel 4, 9 to 12 for that. Jesus even here is hinting to his disciples that the kingdom of God, it's not going to stop in Jerusalem. It's not going to stop merely in Judea. It's going to spread throughout Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This tree will provide rest and shade to all who come. You know, it was about this time last year that, that Ryan Martin and I were in Dubai and we were visiting some missionaries. And Dubai is a crazy place to be because we're, we're looking at satellite photos decades back in this little museum and there's nothing there. There's just nothing where the city currently stands. You've got some Bedouin tribes, and you've got lots of sand and desert and dunes, and that's it. You don't have infrastructure. You've got no obvious resources. You've got no hospitals or schools or functioning government and highways. None of that exists. Nobody cared about it. Nobody took notice. There was nothing to see. And yet now you look at that city, and that city is one of the most thriving cities in the world. It's a top destination point, especially if you've got money. Everyone flocks to Dubai. Now, if you would have dropped anyone in that desert decades ago and said, you know what, in the next 50 years, the tallest building in the world is going to sit right here. 
they would have laughed at you. They would have mocked you, right? The Bedouin people are there. They would have laughed at you, and yet there it is. The Burj Khalifa stands right now, right there. If you would have said in 50 years, the most luxurious hotel in the world, seven star, I don't think seven exists, but that just goes to show how luxurious it is. It's going to be built just off the coast on a man-made island. Yeah, it doesn't exist, but we're going to make an island, and we're going to put this hotel there in the form of a sail. And if you merely want to step into the lobby and the atrium, you've got to pay about $100. But when you get in, you're going to notice that everything up to 600 feet that you can see is coated in 24-karat gold leaf. Even the TVs. Even the TVs. Smallest rooms, about 2,000 square feet. Largest rooms, over 8,000 square feet. You want a suite of one of those rooms? Run you over 20 grand a night. If you would have said to a Bedouin in his tent, that is going to be right outside these shores, would have laughed, would have mocked you. Ryan and I got to go see it. We didn't pay the money. Thankfully, we met someone who connected us and got us in. And I actually just asked someone at the the little counter, I said, hey, could I get a, a, a sheet of your room rates? I said I was a Baptist pastor. They said they weren't very impressed, but they had great dates. Great dates. Point is, no one would have anticipated that kind of a hotel in that location. Right? We would have be more likely to colonize Mars, right, than build that thing right there. And yet there stands the Burj Al Arab in that location. The point is, what appears often to us as inconsequential, of no importance. Jesus is saying when it comes to the kingdom of God, one day it will be phenomenal. It will be phenomenal. And that's the kind of comfort that Christians need, and that's the kind of confidence that they need to minister the Christian gospel. Friend, do you know that comfort of that truth? Do you know the the confidence of that ministry? Because the world, in fact, isn't crashing in upon Christians as much as it seems. It feels that way, but according to the scriptures, we're all in for a big surprise, a glorious surprise. Jesus is just getting started. He is just getting started, and when he's done, right, his kingdom, right, there's no seven-star hotel, there's no building, there's no city, there's no kingdom in this world that can possibly compare to the kingdom that he's establishing. And it's going to be phenomenal, but we don't build it. It won't be accomplished through the right schools or the right legislation or the right occupant on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's what we proclaim as Christians, not what we perform. Because it's fundamentally about a person. It's about Jesus. It begins with him. And if the kingdom of God is ever going to enter into your life this morning, it must first come through the person of Jesus. Friend, are you part of the kingdom of God? And if not, what's keeping you? What's keeping you? Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the parables of Jesus, that as we stare at them and reflect upon them, they begin to deliver the goods. If we have ears to hear, so much is taught, so much comfort, challenge too, but encouragement as well. Oh God, we pray that your word would take root. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.